If you were to summarize my corporate career, and obviously career is way too strong a word here, but the core theme would be discovering the ways I didn't really fit. Now, some people become entrepreneurs because they love the grind and the hustle and the mix of risk and reward. And actually, I like some of that myself, it's true. But mostly I'm an entrepreneur, you know, box of crayons and mbs.works, because after I was fired, I finally figured out that I just wasn't that good at having a boss. Now, of course, I'm my own boss, and I'm still not that good at having a boss. Honestly, this current one is a nightmare to work with, but turns out he's quite hard to get rid of. But is there a way to be a rebel and still flourish within a system? I mean, I guess so. I mean, there is, of course, but <laughs> I always wonder how. Welcome to Two Pages with MBS. This is the podcast where brilliant people read the best two pages from a favorite book, a book that has moved them and a book that has shaped them. And I think this will be a great episode if you're interested in change, in the profession of learning and development, and also if you're looking to go, how do I find my style? How do I keep my myself if I'm part of a bigger organization? Gina Genero is the Chief Learning Officer at the Bank of Montreal. We call it BMO here. Um, it's one of the five big banks of Canada. And she's on a mission to change how her colleagues learn and how they prepare for the future. But that mission isn't just for the people at BMO. I think my personal mission is to try and change the world. And so that dovetails really well with learning. I think there's such an opportunity and we're at such an important point in society and in, in history to be able to do things fundamentally differently, to help everyone be ready for the future that's in front of us. One person in particular planted these seeds of curiosity and resilience. You know, from, from my mom who started reading to me when I was, you know, very, very small and, and really stoking curiosity. I was the kid with the chemistry sets and the microscopes and the digging for fossils and all that sort of stuff. Um, so it started very early, but I also had some fantastic teachers as I was growing up who helped me think very differently about the opportunities and encouraged me to be the outlier that I am. And this, this is the juicy bit for me, the, the thing that I wrestle with. Gina's had a long story career as an executive at BMO, a bank. <laughs> Can't get much more conservative in some ways than a bank. And she used that word that intrigues me, that I identify with. She called herself an outlier. So to start, I'm curious just to know what that word means to her. You know, I think I'm more comfortable in my skin at this point in my career than I might have been earlier. But, you know, I think we've seen over and over again that diversity in every sense mm. builds stronger outcomes. And so it's about not trying to get into groupthink, about not trying right. to conform. It's about trying to have that, you know, internal strike to state your opinion and, and yeah. be okay with being the, the one out in left field compared to all the others. And I'm, right. I'm used to saying things that are just different and you hear crickets for a while. <laughs> um, but you know, the next time maybe you don't yeah. hear crickets or yeah. maybe there's a leap of faith where people go, hmm, I'd never thought of that before. Let's talk more about that. Um, and, and some of it comes down to proof points. So the more that we're able to create difference it encourages people to embrace the difference. Yeah. Um, and so I, I try to really look for where's the wind in the sails. So if I'm trying to drive something that's very different, who can be a partner in that for me? Uh, who can help to kind of bridge 
into the the business approach, the business outcomes, so that it's not just about being different for different sake. It's yeah. about actually driving a different kind of impact. But here's what I'm curious about, Gina. I'm curious to know how you maintain that spirit, because I would consider myself in some ways, um, I'm not sure if I'd use the word outlier, but somebody who prefers to zig when others are zagging. You know, I'm like, I've got a kind of natural reaction to that. And um, I found it very hard to work in a big organization because I just felt that um, I was perpetually nudged back into behaving, um, you know, sometimes by external forces, sometimes by my own voices in my own head. How do you maintain your own spirit? How do you maintain that sense of outlier independence? You know, I think some of it is the opportunity to work with fantastic leaders who mm. appreciate that I don't fit in a box. Um, and my team doesn't either. Okay. And, you know, I think part of it is is a little bit virtue of the role. So I've been more than 30 years in a bank, but it's been a while since I've been a banker. Mm. I started there. I've worked a, a number of years of my career there, but the type of role that I'm in now, there's actually an opportunity for the R&D mindset, for doing agile work, for mm -hmm. uh, really pushing the bounds of what we could do if we can show business value in it. Right. So I have people experimenting with AI and virtual reality and augmented reality. I've changed the composition of my team where it's not yeah. just the formal learning designers, it's the graphic artists and novelists and musicians and you know diversity in the broadest sense. Yeah. And I think if you're able to always keep an eye on the business value you can drive, you can really take control of the how yeah. in terms of how you get there. Got it. Well, then let me ask you this. How do you figure out business value because that's also not an easy thing to do which is like in a world of noise how do you find where the, the signal is what 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 how have you built that capacity and so i would say it's it's two key things one is around looking for the key problems that are trying to be solved in the company and mm. figuring out how can I help? How can the solution that I can provide, how can we partner with the business and other, other individuals across the company to solve their problem? Because often that problem has business value baked into it. The, the other thing we're doing is being very deliberate around our learning measurement strategy. So we're trying to take a very business-focused approach mm. of how we measure things and what we measure. So, you know, learning so often the required metrics are learning time mm -hmm. and learning spend, but neither right. of those things actually say anything about whether learning happened. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Um, so we keep reporting them because we need to from, uh, yeah. from different, you know, regulate, regulator um, requirements and so on, yeah. but really starting to work on the discipline around having a strong um data and integration layer to make sure we can get the data we need, having the right operational effectiveness metrics. Mm. Are we a well-run shop? Are yeah. we efficient? Are we driving the right cycle times and so on? Program metrics. Do yeah. our programs, large and small, uh, you know, formal and informal, actually do what they set out to do? Right. And how do we show that? Um, for skills, what are the yeah. skills we have in the company? What are those that we need and how are we moving the dial in a measured mm. way over time? And then the, the holy grail, I guess, is around how does learning in aggregate ladder up to strategic impact, the top yeah. strategic priorities of the company and the big people metrics like turnover and engagement. Yeah. So we're trying to be very deliberate and lining up our metrics against those things so we can actually show in a more deliberate way yeah. what's happening. 
you know, ha- having kind of been a, a partner for many years in, in the world of L&D with, you know, other organizations, um, I have a hypothesis that's a bit, it's a bit sad, actually, and I, I don't mean to sound cynical, but I feel that many uh, learning organizations dance around the, the measurement because actually they'd be afraid of what they found out which is around it'd be too it would be too revealing about how inefficient or ineffective a lot of kind of learning interventions might be um i guess i'm 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 curious to know um <laughs> where you where you find the courage to stare in the mirror and go we we we've, we've got to measure what really matters here you know it it isn't easy for two reasons one is sort of the the um the, the gut side of it, as you were mentioning. And the, the other is that it's hard. Yeah. Um, it's difficult to isolate learning metrics. And so being able to embrace perhaps the correlations versus causation, but going into a place where we are holding ourselves to the same kinds of standards that every other leader, every other team in the company is having to do. Why should we be different? Right. If we actually want to compete for investment, we want to be able to mm. show value then we need to be able to be deliberate about it, just like every other part of the company. And so, you know, I think it's important for us to have the discipline to do that, but it also buys us the opportunity to do more and to keep pushing the bounds and to keep leading in terms of of where we can be um, creating opportunity for our employees and creating opportunity for the business. That's interesting. Gina, tell me about the book you're going to read from for us. So the the book I've chosen is Switch. Excellent. So it's uh, Chip Heath and Dan Heath and Mm -hmm. How to Change Things When Change is Hard. (laughs) I love this book. I know this book. I read it up on my shelf just over my my shoulder there. And Chip and Dan Heath are people who I look to as writers who I'm like, I wish I could write books like them. Actually, I'm glad I don't because I I can't write a book like them. But I really admire that they wrote that book because I'm like, I couldn't write that book and it's a great book. And I remember first reading Switch and going, this is such a great primer on understanding change in a way that feels accessible and helpful for people. So, I mean, let me ask you, how did it come into your life? When did you discover it? So I actually first read it years ago, Mm. uh, you know, around the time that it first came out, I guess. And I've read it every few years since because I actually find it's a great reminder of where we're able to keep change simpler than we think it needs to be. Mm. Um, but even given that change is hard, <laughs> right? <laughs> right? There's so many you know methods that have come along over the years that just feel hard to even start on. This yeah. is very accessible. It's very yeah. practical. And you're able to really see how things are moving as they are moving. Okay. So it's been a bit of a touchstone for me over the last number of years. Yeah. And uh, which pages did you choose three from? So I chose to read 168 and 169. Great. Um, how do you, I mean, that book is rich with stuff. I'm curious to know why you chose these two pages in particular. Uh, so first of all, it, they focus on growth mindset, which I'm mm. pretty passionate about. And I think in, in the type of work I do need to be passionate about. Also, I wanted to make sure that as we were having the conversation, I wanted to find a passage that felt intact. Right. Um, you know, where, where it might make some sense as a standalone and be able to have a conversation around it. Yeah. Uh, I would hate the, the thought of kind of dropping people into the <laughs> middle of a thought. 
It is true. Uh, it's, you know, it's one of the great pleasures for me in this podcast is, is not only having people kind of wrestle with the book that they choose, but then wrestle with the pages that they, they choose from the book. Um, so wonderful. So Gina, why don't we hear the two pages? So over to you. In the business world, we implicitly reject the growth mindset. Business people think in terms of two stages. You plan and then you execute. There's no learning stage or practice stage in the middle. From the business perspective, practice looks like poor execution. Results are the thing. We don't care how you do it, just get it done. But to create and sustain change, you've got to act more like a coach and less like a scorekeeper. You've got to embrace the growth mindset and instill it in your team. Why is that so critical? Because, as Harvard Business School professor Rosbeth Moss Cantor observed in studying large organizations, everything can look like a failure in the middle. A similar sentiment is expressed by marriage therapist Michelle Weiner Davis, who says that real change, the kind that sticks, is often three steps forward and two steps back. If failure is a necessary part of change, then the way people understand failure is critical. The leaders at IDEO, the world's preeminent product design firm, have designed products and experiences ranging from the first Apple mouse to a new Red Cross blood donation procedure. They understand the need to prepare their employees, and more important, their clients, for failure. Tim Brown, the CEO of IDEO, says that every design process goes through foggy periods. One of IDEO's designers even sketched out a project mood chart that predicts how people will feel at different phases of a project. It's a U-shaped curve with a peak of positive emotion labeled hope at the beginning, and a second peak of positive emotion labeled confidence at the end. In between the two peaks is a negative emotional valley labeled insight. Brown says that design is rarely a graceful leap from height to height. When a team embarks on a new project, team members are filled with hope and optimism. As they start to collect data and observe real people struggling with existing products, they find that new ideas spring forth effortlessly. Then comes the difficult task of integrating all those fresh ideas into a coherent new design. At this insight stage, it's easy to get depressed because insight doesn't always strike immediately. The project often feels like a failure in the middle. But if the team persists through this valley of angst and doubt, it eventually emerges with a growing sense of momentum. Team members begin to test out their new designs, and they realize the improvements they've made, and they keep tweaking the design to make it better. And they come to realize, we've cracked this problem. That's when the team reaches the peak of confidence. Notice what team leaders at IDEO are doing with the peaks and valley visual. They're creating the expectation of failure. They're telling team members not to trust that initial flush of good feeling at the beginning of the project, because what comes next is hardship and toil and frustration. Yet, strangely enough, when they deliver this warning, it comes across as optimism. That's the paradox of the growth mindset. Although it seems to draw attention to failure, and in fact encourages us to seek out failure, it is unflaggingly optimistic. We will struggle, we will fail, we will be knocked down, but throughout we'll get better and we'll succeed in the end. The growth mindset then is a buffer against defeatism. It reframes failure as a natural part of the change process. And that's critical because people will persevere only if they perceive falling down as learning rather than failing.
That's fantastic, Gina. And honestly, I love this idea of a mood chart from <laughs> hope to confidence. You know, just having gone through writing this last book, I'm just like, oh my God, that was exactly right. You know, at the start, I'm like, oh, I see what this book is about. And in the middle, I'm like, this is a terrible book. I'm a terrible person. It's a terrible idea. And now I'm back on the on the confident thing on the other side going, I think this is a good book at last. Um, what was it that rings so true for you about this passage? I tend to be a pretty optimistic person. Mm. And I, I loved the framing around setting out the journey at the beginning, talking about the parts that are hard, but focusing the team on the bright spot at the end so that they understand that they will go through this journey, that not every day will be easy. There will be points where they may want to give up, but there's actually this brighter place at the end where we will be successful. We will drive impact. We will make a difference. And I think the people in my team are drawn to learning for a reason, for the most right. part. You know, they, they believe that they can make things better for employees, that they can create an atmosphere where people can build the skills, they can prepare for the future, they can do more. Yeah. And uh, I, I hadn't mentioned to you, I don't think when we spoke uh, in the past that the purpose at BMO is to boldly grow the good in business nice. and life. Oh, I love that. So not something you would always expect from a bank, no. but, but it has framed the choices we make, the focus of everyone in the company. And that really permeates through my team as well. How do we boldly grow the good? Mm. And that doesn't mean that good is easy, but it mm. means that good is important. Yeah. Well, that that conversation about what's important, but what's easy. <laughs> it's like change. Change actually is simple and difficult. <laughs> it doesn't have to be complicated. It doesn't make it easy, though. Gina, one of the phrases that struck me from the passage you read was about preparing, how IDEO prepare their clients for failure. How do you prepare your clients for failure? Because you're, you're, you've got clients as a, a provider inside a big bank. Um, everybody nods along to a passage like this, going, mm -hmm, yeah, absolutely, I'm growth mindset, I'm all for it. And But the truth is, there's this drive for a kind of a linear process, which is like we start at A, and we're making our way to B. None of this two steps forward, three steps back, hoo-ha, I, I, I want a linear process. So how do you prepare your clients for failure? So it's never easy, but I think it's a couple of things. Um, mm. One is around co-creation. Mm. So as we do more and more agile work, it's making sure that the people from the, those teams, the subject matter experts, the people who are sponsoring the work, there's actually folks from their team who are part of the design process. And we're able to create more MVP. So it's not about waiting for a number of months and then you know if something isn't quite what they expected or if the world has moved on and the, the goal isn't quite what they thought it was starting out. We're actually in lockstep with them. We're able to create MVP right. and keep iterating so that we are close and and hitting the mark through the process. And and by MVP you mean a minimal viable oh, sorry, product. Minimal viable kind product. of tapping into that kind of lean mindset. Yeah. Nice. And so you if you design quickly and, mm. and sort of test to learn and, and improve, then I yeah. think it ultimately creates better outcomes. It also creates greater buy-in and greater alignment throughout the process. Yeah. There's also a learning that I had very early in my career. There was a wonderful gentleman I worked with, and he had a, a model that he always used. So if you picture sort of a square with a request in the upper left, offer in the upper right, performance in the bottom right, and declaration of satisfaction in the bottom left. So mm. request, offer, 
performance and declaration of satisfaction, ideally sort of forming a cycle. The most important thing to focus on are the first two. And right. so it's not just one step to go from request to offer. It's back and forth and back and forth to get super clear and not make assumptions about what are you actually delivering? What's the problem to <laughs> right. be solved? Um, right. and, and make sure that you have the means to be able yeah. to deliver performance and mm. be able to um, you know, get to that point of satisfaction. And so I think that was one of the best learnings for me yeah. as I was coming into roles, you know, outside of the business type of roles mm. that I'd had in the past into more design and more creative and more um, headquarters type roles. It's never speed up, never, never um, skip that process of getting super clear between request and offer. And before you make the firm offer, <laughs> make sure you can actually perform. Yeah. I love and that. Uh, uh, I learned that the hard way uh, in, in some <laughs> of the, the uh, you know, early days of my, uh, my design work. But it was a lesson I never forgot. And so yeah. that's where I really try to encourage my team. Let's get super clear on that yeah. so that you're not, you know, we're not going in one direction while the person who sponsored the work is thinking we're going in another. Right. I mean, you're, I'm, you're preaching to the converted here. You know, the, one of the, the questions from the Coaching Habit book that I think is so powerful is what's the real challenge here? And the key insight is that the first thing they bring to the table is not the real challenge. It's just their first guess. So if you get seduced into thinking that's the thing to solve, there's disappointment awaiting all parties at the end exactly. of that, whatever that flurry might be. Gina, what did you have to break to, to create a learning organization that is full of artists and journalists and has a commitment to measurement and has agile and MVP? I mean, you're describing something that doesn't feel normal for me in a learning experience. So I'm curious how you broke it and how you were able to rebuild it. It really was about small wins. So part of it was focusing in on what are the big trends we see on the landscape? Where do we have to be in you know five years down the road or more? Uh, where's the world going? Mm. And I just knew that formal learning, you know, being being a, a function that created classroom learning and e-learning, you know, that awful sort of next, next, next <laughs> uh, that uh, um, that you see so often in the industry. You know, that was not the place that we needed to be longer term. That wasn't right. where employees spend their time when they're not at work. Uh, that's not the type of thing that engages them, and it won't serve the business needs well. Um, when I came into this role, uh, you know, I. I was a little um, uh, challenged to find that they had just spent a number of months working on their strategy, which was actually about saying no to anything that wasn't formal learning. So they were very proudly showed it to me as I <laughs> as I came into my new role, and I kind of went, oh, uh, uh -huh. you know, on the inside. Um, and you know, some very bright people, very passionate people, but it just yeah. felt like they were going into more of that fixed space. It was like, this mm. is what we do; we don't do other things. Mm. And I thought, wow! So we've we've got to think differently if we're going to. Uh, anticipate and keep pace with where the company right. is going, where the world is going. Yeah. And so it really started with with small wins, you know, giving people an opportunity to have a little bit of freedom on R&D. And I, I strategically picked out the areas that I wanted people to focus on to start to get a different perspective around where things were going, to start to kick the tires a little bit on VR and AR and AI and so on, and start to see, well, gee, you know, we could do this. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, what if we started to introduce these sorts of things? What if we said yes to these requests that weren't just right. the formal learning? What right. if we were able to do a number of quick hits that mm. took far less time? What if we were able to curate you know, using the best content off the street and just wrap 
the BMO context around the outside. There's no BMO right. way of teaching Excel. <laughs> there just isn't, right? So, so how do we start to leverage some of the things that are, um, you know, just great opportunities yeah. and start to embed those and, and celebrate the little wins? You yeah. know, the uh, Chip and Dan Heath talk about, uh, you know, liberally using mango to encourage. Um, you know, it, it's about celebrating the successes and, and where things are changing. And as people get excited about that, yeah. then they, you know, success breeds success. Yeah. And so we, you know, as we had um, openings, we started to hire people who were different. They started to teach each other. So we had one video person who was able to now teach 10 people how to do video editing and editing and post-production. We've had people who now introduce podcasts because they love listening to them. They said, right. could I do one of those? Sure. <laughs> Why not? Um, and, you know, starting to kind of get the snowball going. Yeah. And, and there's this incredible, dynamic, close-knit, fun team now that loves coming up with new solutions. And they all come from a different background and experience. So they see solutions in different ways. So, you know, it's about starting small and and finding the bright spots that you can really keep building on. Nice. How do you speak to your colleagues around learning now? Because... You have your you have your team, and part of your job is to, as they say, provide air cover so your team can do great stuff and develop and be agile and kind of rethink about it. But part of providing that support is actually managing the forces around them, and including particularly managing the key stakeholders and the the folks at that senior level who have their own agenda and their own business needs. Um, and traditionally, you know. Um, talking about learning was something that they'd be trying to not talk a whole lot about because it kind of is distracting from the business of making money and managing money. Um, I'm curious to know how, what conversations with them sound like and what language you use and you don't use in that, in those conversations. I think the conversations have evolved a lot over the last mm. few years. So, you know, the first pivot was not talking as much about learning, but talking right. about how do we advance performance? And so as we think about business leaders who are trying to solve problems, they need to have certain outcomes. They need to make sure that people have the skills to be able to do that. And so, you know, the pivot to advancing performance was the first step. And now over the last few years, we've gone hard on skills and reskilling. And as you think about, we've heard so many stories about the great resignation. We've heard about the, the life, um, the life expectancy or duration of a skill, the half-life of a skill. And so right. there's so much focus in business leaders now as we come through the pandemic around the gaps in skills that they see in the organization and in their own teams and, and compared to the work that they need to get done. So skills have been a critical place that we have focused over the last couple of years, right. building the, the um, infrastructure and the strategy around how we advance skills. Mm. For, for the current job that people are doing for their careers, so there's benefit to the employee. And, and most critically, as you get people to fund initiatives, uh, how can it move the dial in business outcomes and support for our customers? Right. And so a lot of focus on reskilling, on skills insights, on being able to shift from matching people to jobs into matching skills to work, right. and really going hard on our focus and our commitment as a company of being a digital first organization, well, that requires very different skill sets. So that's the place that I engage now. And of mm. course, people need to do learning in order to build skills. But it's it's what do you lead with and what do you follow with? So it's right. leading on the skills and it's leading on the outcomes. 
can, can you talk a bit more about skills? Because, you know, when you say that, I'm like, that feels like, I don't know, like the 1980s or something, where it's kind of like this focus on these kind of tactical things. So can you give me an example of, of what are 2021 skills that are emerging as we need these skills to, to offer a solution to this challenge? So there's really three areas of skills that we focus on. One is technical, which is things like Digitech and data, the things that are really required to build the future that we're all anticipating. Then there's the human skills or what we call power skills, which are things mm. like empathy and resilience to enable people to actually separate themselves from the technology <laughs> and stand out. And then there's higher cognitive. So things like problem solving, creativity, and innovation. Oh, I love that. And you know the problems we need to solve in the coming years are different than the ones we've ever seen before. Right. And in many cases, there is no right answer. Mm. So it's helping people get into this place of being able to deal with ambiguity, to be able to look for signals, to be able to solve problems in different ways and together um, in different ways across the organization, not just within a particular domain and building the, the skill and building the muscle around being able to, to do that. So those are the areas we're focusing yeah, on. Nice. And, and we're actually really proud. We're one of 18 founding partners of the World Economic Forum Skills Link Alliance. So we've actually made a public commitment to use skills in how we find, grow, and move talent in our organization. Okay. And so that means rethinking how yeah. we approach all of these things. I love this conversation around skills at that higher level, which is like, you need these things to navigate through this future, which is more complex and faster moving and more confusing than we've probably seen for a while. I'm curious to know how you, Gina, yourself manage ambiguity because you have a, you know, as I talk to you, I feel like you have this kind of serene presence. <laughs> and so I'm going to project that you have a capacity to, you know, to actually understand and manage through ambiguity. Are there, th are there skills you have and, and, frameworks or mindsets you have that make it easier to be resilient and, and sit with uncertainty and discomfort? You know, I think, I think I've always had an element of resilience. I think the last two years have created uh, much more capacity for resilience in everyone. Yeah. Um, you know, a lot of it, it with me is actually being an active learner myself and trying to help to ensure that that me and everyone in my team is ready for anything. Right. So I tend to be a very regular learner. I engage in in a wide array of things. So it's not just the learning you would expect around strategy, leadership, learning, design, etc. I actually focus on a broad array of things like forensics and anthropology and right. um, space and you know all <laughs> right. kinds of different things like that. And I actually find that because my um, the range of learning I do is so broad. It means that often when I'm engaging in something that has nothing to do with my day job, it right. starts to give me these ideas yeah. that we're thinking, gee, well, if I were to approach this problem mm. that way, I could actually think really yeah. differently and achieve a different outcome. Yeah. So I find it helps to shake up my thinking all the time and, and disrupt myself, I guess, more than anything else. Yeah. I also look for, for the team, what are the points of certainty or as close we can get to certainty, even in a world of ambiguity. So what are the things we can control? What are the things that we can um, 
create some framework around and create some structure mm-hmm. around? And what are the things where truly we just need to be open for, you know, what that valley of insight will look like as we're mm-hmm. traveling through it? Um, you know, where things might be tough and, and what signals to look for to help right. come out the other side. How do you, how will you disrupt yourself? Like, I'm, I'm just curious to know, like, you know, I think of, you know, the model of adult learning, which is like you move through stages, you get better at a particular stage, and then there's a moment where you need to leap from one stage to the next stage. And I'm curious to know whether you feel like you're moving through a stage at the moment, or you're at the cusp of needing to jump to the next stage. And if it's, and in either case, it's like, how do you, well, maybe it's particularly if they're jumping to the next stage, which is like, how do you think about disrupting where you are now to go, this is how I open up whatever's next for Gina Genero. You know, uh, and I won't say I have it all figured out. You know, I think, <laughs> no. I think all of us are on a journey. Um, but I always try to think about, you know, what if, what's possible, what, mm. what could happen, uh, you know, whether that's for me, for the team, for the company, you know, whatever lens. Um, I spend a lot of time focusing in on future of work and focusing in on uh, industry leaders, industry thought right. leaders, and we really try to push each other to think differently about things. Mm. But you know, if I if I think about some of that, what if my next comment that I try to instill in myself is why not? Right, you know, right. Why, why couldn't we? What you know? Um, what would it take to do that? And then do a bit of a leap of faith. I've I've yeah. done um, I've done that throughout my career where I've had you know job opportunities or um, or you know broader. Um, career opportunities that made no sense perhaps on the surface but there was something in it that was like there's there's something really <laughs> interesting there right and you sort of jump out of the plane and you know reach and hope you can find the uh the ripcord for the parachute um and and so far i keep landing so i suppose that's a good that's thing good that is a good thing um gina has been this has been such a great conversation so thank you um a final question, maybe. What needs to be said that hasn't yet been said in this conversation between you and me? You know, we've we've talked about some of the the technical aspects around composition of team and skills and mm. that sort of thing. But I think one of the most important things, whether it be with change, whether it be with learning, is the 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 passion and and the quality and the you know amazing aspects of the people that you have. You know, the honor to work with. And so I am so grateful for for my team and for their leaps of faith every single day. You know, I think if you can surround yourself with fantastic people who have passion, who have purpose, who have fun, yeah. you know, there's so much you can achieve. And if you can find the wind in the sails moments with others who want to do leaps of faith in the business externally, etc., you know, I think that our our biggest limiter is ourselves. And so if we could surround ourselves with people who believe in purpose and possibility and have passion, that's really where the magic can happen. So Jen has got me rethinking learning and, you know, I'm a little resistant, which of course is massively ironic. You know, I feel that learning is my domain, so I shouldn't need to be relearning about learning. So yeah, paradox. But what I'm remembering now, and this is through this conversation again, is that learning is a process. And for any process, it's worth asking, well, for the sake of what? What's the outcome that matters? And in the world of learning and development, if you play in this world, 
we can sometimes get a little bit circular. And we talk about learning for the sake of learning, so we measure learning. And learning is the process, it's not the outcome. Gina talks about how to advance performance. And I like that phrase. It's got a it's got a strength to it, a clarity to it that's helpful. I think it's broad enough to be adaptable, but it's also specific enough to mean something real in different contexts. I mean, advancing performance in the work I do at mbs.works is different from the way we advance performance in the work I do at boxofcrayons.com, but it's um, got a similar heart that beats there. And I might ask you, you know, as part of this podcast or part of your own life, you know, in your world, what would it mean to advance performance? What would that require of you in the doing of it and in the being of it? And perhaps, for the sake of why, what does that hint at in terms of what you might need to learn? Two interviews that might supplement this one nicely. One with my good friend Liz Wiseman. She has a newish book out in the world called Impact Players. How, you know, the people who have 10 times the impact in an organization than others, how do they do that? <laughs> and uh, as always with Liz's stuff, it's thoughtful, it's well-researched. She is a very smart, grace, gracious woman. I really like her, her presence. Um, my interview with her is called How to Thrive. And Neftali Bryant uh, works in learning and development for Netflix. Um, and really interesting conversation. That interview is called The Law of the Rubber Band. Um, if you want to have a little bit more of Gina, she's you know she's not a, a book writer, a thought leader type, you know, with a much of an external presence, but she is on Twitter at underscore J E N E R O U X. Hey, thank you for listening. Um, thank you for passing this uh, interview on. If you work in L and D, you know, pass it along to your L and D colleagues. I think they'll find it valuable and helpful. Um, thank you for a review if you've done that on the podcast. And I'll just finish by letting you know that you're awesome and you're doing great.